Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, March 1st, 2023. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me as always, Executive Editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media Commentary Columnist and American Enterprise Institute Senior Fellow, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And Christine's AEI colleague and our Washington Commentary Columnist, Matthew Continetti. Hi, Matt. Hi, John. Uh, big news out of Chicago last night, Democratic primary uh, ends with uh, the incumbent mayor, Lori Lightfoot, receiving 15% of the vote, coming in third. She will therefore no longer be mayor of Chicago come election day in November. There will be a runoff between the two leading uh, candidates. Uh, the leading candidate uh, is a tough on crime pseudo Republican uh uh school reformer uh, uh person who's now spent uh, 20 odd years uh in and out of uh school districts kind of trying to fix them from Chicago's uh to Bridgeport Connecticut's to Philadelphia's as well as having served in state government in Illinois uh, Paul Vallis, uh, he is essentially like the Giuliani of this race, if 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 you could put it that way, and he will contest uh, in a runoff uh, in a in I think six weeks or something like that, April fourth. No, so it's like 30, 33 days uh, against uh, a county board commissioner named Brandon Johnson who ran to Lightfoot's left. Uh, so this means now that uh, two of the three largest cities in uh, America, New York and Chicago, uh, are changing their ideological focus. Or New York's election in 2021 represented a change in ideological focus toward crime. This appears to be an election that will change the ideological focus toward crime. And indeed, in the second largest city, where there was a mayoral election in uh, in November, there was similarly a, the in the end the reform the crime the crime and only crime candidate did not quite prevail, but got way closer uh, than anybody would have thought a couple of years earlier. So, what do you make of it? Well, uh, there are a few uh, takeaways uh, for me from uh, the Chicago election uh, yesterday. The first is, as you suggest, John, the power of the crime issue. Um, and this is something that has burst onto the scene since 2020. Uh, crime spiked um, after 2020. It was on the rise uh, even a little bit before, uh, but it certainly spiked uh, in 2020. And it has uh, galvanized the electorate. And you, we even saw the power of it. Uh, in the midterm elections, where the Democrats, to the degree that they are associated with the defund the police uh, campaign, uh, are harmed uh, considerably. And so even within um, kind of monolithically blue uh, localities like New York or like uh, Chicago, it still plays a big uh, role. Um, my my second takeaway is, uh, you know, uh, Lori Lightfoot was just uh, an extremely unlikable mayor. And it's funny reading the Wall Street Journal write-up in the news section today. Um, it, it begins with, it says, you know, Ms. Lightfoot, 60 years old, is a former federal prosecutor who became the first black woman and first openly gay person to lead the city. She pitched herself as a reformer and scored an outsider win in the 2019 election. But she quickly got into battles with the powerful Chicago teachers unions. I, you know, I guess that's true. I mean, she did get in fights with the union and um, and with the teachers. And of course, the, the teachers union endorsed Brandon Johnson, the um, the left wing candidate in the runoff. But um, she also had this kind of uh, a negative uh, touch, which I think alienated a lot of people. And so uh, personality matters quite a bit. Um, and then the, just the final point I'd make is, you know, in some ways, the Eric Adams election uh, of, to be mayor of New York, which happened um, in 2021, is something of a warning for Paul Vallis because we've seen with Mayor Adams uh, that he took a you know a pretty tough on crime approach 
in the uh, campaign, and it, he was certainly rewarded for it. But the implementation has been rather rocky, and um, he himself has kind of unusual qualities to his personality that um, I think have uh, inhibited him from really um, cracking down on crime and um, improving public safety in New York City. Vallis uh, has a, a hard task ahead, uh, but it is reassuring, I think, when you look at his platform and he says, look, I want to hire more p- cops because even though Lightfoot increased the police budget, cops were leaving in droves in Chicago. And two, he says he wants to reinstate community policing, which is a time-tested crime-fighting technique that was articulated by commentary contributor James Q. Wilson uh, in the 70s and 80s. Yeah, there. I think we shouldn't underestimate how how much her personality as a politician and the way she dealt even with her own coalitions was extremely polarizing. She always governed with the stick, never with the carrot. And I I don't even want to give her credit for taking on the teachers unions, although technically she did. She waited very late in the game on lockdowns. Chicago teachers unions would still have their public schools closed to this day had she not gently pushed back. And and it she she just always seemed inauthentic. And I think this is part of a broader problem with these kind of progressive uh, candidates who run on identity main that's that was the always the main platform of her of her main plank of her platform she was constantly you know uh, talking about her identity and how you know amazing it was that she was the first this first that she was praised for it in the press but when it comes down to it she wasn't doing meat and potatoes uh, governance she wasn't keeping things keeping the streets safe she actually wasn't keeping her own supposed constituents the african americans in chicago who are much more likely to be victims of crime she wasn't keeping them safe and i think that that uh, that's important to remember. She's just not a great retail politician. The other thing I think was is, is revelatory here is that we shouldn't forget, even though you know a more moderate Democrat is uh, you know in the in the runoff, and even though a more moderate uh, Democrat run uh, like one Karen Bass in, in Los Angeles, the the window has sh- the Overton window has really still shifted far more to the left when it comes to how big city mayors, big city Democratic mayors govern now versus how they governed maybe 40, 50 years ago. Um, the coalitions are different. The identity politics are different. And they're still pretty far to the left of many Americans on crime and justice issues. Right. Well, uh, Vallis is not. So th- right. this is the, this is the complication uh, in the in the an- analogizing him to Adams as a as a potential mayor. First of all, he is a longtime government bureaucrat uh, who has had to ford and navigate governmental systems in several different localities uh, in order to uh, initiate reforms in schooling. Second, he said in 2009, I am kind of more Republican than I am a Democrat. Now, he spent much time during the Chicago run-up to the election uh, denying that or moving away from it or whatever. But in fact, the last uh, Republican governor of the state, uh, Bruce Rauner, um, was constantly trying to get him... (laughs) Uh, into jobs uh, because he saw him as a somebody that he could work with. And that's why I say he's more of a Giuliani. That is say Giuliani was uh, the Rudy Giuliani of 1989 and 1993 was not the Rudy Giuliani of later. He was a Democrat who became a Republican. Um, you know, he, he ended up sort of focusing like a laser on what, we would have thought of 10 years earlier as a classically urban democratic approach to the problems it's uh, that that were were faced it's just that the democratic party in the 80s and 90s moved so far to the left on on public safety and neighborhood order and all of that 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 he ended up having to migrate to the republican party and run there. I only bring this up not because I'm going to say, oh, it's really great just because Vallis says he's a Republican. What I mean is it's a very significant um, lurch, way more of a lurch than Adams, because though Adams ran in 2021 saying, I'm the tough on crime candidate, he was no tough on crime person. He had run an anti-cop organization within the NYPD called 100 
black men in law enforcement who care, which was essentially something that he incepted at the direction of Al Sharpton in the mid 90s. What he did was sort of what John Kerry did in 2004 running for president, which is that he took his record as a cop, just as Kerry had taken his record as a veteran. Kerry got himself famous by being a veteran who threw his medals away and attacked America from that perspective uh, after he returned from Vietnam and then said, I'm reporting for duty. You know, I'm, I'm Mr. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm yeah. the noble stalwart here. And Adams sort of did exactly the same thing. It's like, I'm the only one who can fight crime. I'll wear a gun into church. That's how, that's how much so, I'm going to fight crime. I'm going into church with my gun. So John, I, I given what you're saying, and this, this, this jibes with how I've been looking at this, which is that this is sort of phase two of the counter-revolution. Uh, phase one sort of happened elections, November of, of 2021. Um, you had a lot of people say, changing their rhetoric, walking back uh, the defund uh, uh, language uh, and some voters perhaps extending some 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 good faith uh, about these pledges, but you had some 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 you know uh, some some Democrats took a big hit as well. But this is now saying, okay, no, no, we mean it. Put meat on the bones. We want people that are actually going to 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 reverse this chaos. Yeah, I mean, Lori Lightfoot. Yeah, is of course she's the the face of municipal failure in the U.S. But I don't think any better politician could have sold her her public safety record any better. I mean, maybe better, but not successfully. And other mayors, look, uh, the mayor of New Orleans, where crime has also increased dramatically, is facing potential recall. Lots of other mayors in high crime urban areas are facing pressure. Our own city council, there's there's efforts to recall particular particularly progressive, you know, uh, soft on crime defund police types, even on city council. So this is definitely, Abe's absolutely right, that this is a trend that we should continue yeah. to watch. And of course, the recall of Chesa Boudin as, right. the, as the district attorney in San Francisco. So you have you have a whole bunch of different data points. Uh, Adams is a very interesting example to talk about here because um, he had one job. Based on his own candidacy, he had one job. And um, he's not a serious person. He's an unserious person. He wants to be mayor to be mayor. He walks around. My son, we were watching the local news channel here in New York. And there was an interview with him yesterday morning or a couple days ago. And my son, who's 12, we're watching. And he said to me, why is he wearing a cap that says NYC mayor on it? He walks around New York wearing a baseball cap that says NYC mayor on it. Like, that's all you need to know about Adams, is that he's the mayor to be the mayor, to have the cap on his head that says, I am the mayor. He has no evangelical cause in relation to fighting crime. He is not doing what what good politicians do when they are dealing with a hard, a hard tack issue, which is that he is not picking out enemies and defeating them on the way in order to send a message to to the other people who want to who would want to face him down. He is not leading the way, and the first ten months of his mayoralty saw crime jump forty percent in the city from its already astronomical levels. We can talk about what has happened since, but but the point is that he's not a serious person. And Lightfoot and people like her are not serious people either in some weird way because of the identity politics frame. In other words, getting to be mayor is what matters. She's mayor. She's the first black female mayor. She's the first gay mayor. What she she failed to understand that that is just the jumping off point because you have to show results. I, I, I do think there, okay. uh, there's also this um, there's this structural problem which faces a lot of these cities, which in uh, many cases, the city councils are far to the left mm-hmm. of even the progressive mayors who are now disenthralled, right? So um, 
I'm just it, it it's electing a mayor seems not actually to be quite enough to resolve the challenges facing America's cities. There's a whole mentality out there uh, that is more than amply represented in some of these governing councils um, that you have to defeat and which has not actually been beaten back. This is Vallis's challenge. I mean, um, you think about, you know, the city uh, where I work, Washington, D.C., um, Muriel Bowser, the mayor, she's one of the um, uh, black women mayors who, you know, was in charge during uh, the George Floyd riots. And she has uh, she won reelection, um, but she is not tackling the public safety issue at all. And, and then she has this radical uh, city council bill that's just been passed that's basically going um, to impose bail reform and lessen penalties for for larceny um, within the District of Columbia. And Congress is actually very close to striking down that law, but she's resisting it, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, because that's, that comes into play. You know, don't tell us what to do, right? Um, and it's similar in uh, New York, too, where some the city council has sometimes lunatic ideas yeah. that, that they but they're, but they're ideologized because there's, it's a one, these are one party towns. It's really yeah. important for people. So even though you might have a spectrum from radical left to moderate, even like slightly moderate Democrat, occasionally one of those will appear, yeah. very few in, on our city council in D.C., but they they have no ideological competition. They have no competition for ideas and anything to the to the you know slight right or even right. slightly towards the middle where the rest of the country is and where a lot of their residents are is fascism. So that that kind of ideological capture has been incredibly pernicious. And the only way to root it out, Matt's absolutely right. You got to get rid of those bad mayors and the city council. Right, but there's a, a, a there has to be a codicil here, which is that both New York, particularly New York, but both both New York and Chicago have what some a political scientists call a strong mayor system. That is to say, New York's New York's charter, the Re- revised New York charter, which came into play in uh, 1989, invests enormous executive powers in the mayor. The city council is almost an afterthought in the system of governance in, in, in New York City. It has very little power, which is one of the reasons that the most thing, what it does mostly, and I'm not joking, is rename streets. Is, you know, decide that like my street is called Isaac Besheva Singer Boulevard or, the, you know, some uh, a street in Queens is named after, you know, somebody who was killed there or something like that. Hundreds of bills a year, adding a street, an honorary street sign, because they really don't have that much budgetary power or statutory authority. And Chicago, which is not quite, it's not, it, it's not that executive heavy, but it's pretty executive heavy. And and uh, and so, uh, Vallis has more room, running room than Muriel Bowser has, for example, or or other mayors do, um, and therefore. The stakes are higher because, you know, but again, let, let's take that what you say is a given. A good politician faced with the need to fulfill his campaign promise or her campaign promise to do something about crime. And by the way, that was an issue in in the in the mayoral election in Chicago in 2019. I mean, if you remember, Rahm Emanuel was going to run for a third term and then he decided not to he he decided he wasn't going to test himself in that primary because he thought he was going to lose because uh a strong uh ethnic a black candidate or even a hispanic candidate could have eaten away at him in a primary and the white voters in the city had had enough of him because crime was on the was on the radical increase and of course, a, a guy like him, Mini Cuomo, when when people stop liking him, they really stop liking him. You know, he's it was obnoxious and 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 overly combative and annoying and jerky. And so when when things started to turn bad for him, he had no built up or pent up goodwill. Clearly, that's something that happened with Lori Lightfoot. You don't end up winning, you know, 80% of the vote and then getting 15% of the vote four years later if the entire city isn't sick to death of you. And I think, uh, you know, Abe mentioned the counter-revolution, but of course you had two. Crime 
in some of these places was accelerating from 2017, 2018 onward, and then really started to accelerate when policies started to change in these places, particularly when it came to the uh, implementation of new policies by DAs and that like not enforcing misdemeanor or prosecuting misdemeanor offenses, bail reform, particularly in New York state and all of that. And then came the pandemic and 2020 and the George Floyd. And then you had this, that was just an accelerant that used these changes and that ended up taking these changes in policy and then giving them, and then at, you know, basically being just, you know, taking a can of gasoline and pouring it onto a and, barbecue. And you, sh- you should add that at, at that moment, when citizens started saying, I'm afraid to leave my house, my neighborhood feels, you know, unsafe, I, you know, I'm scared, basically, these elected progressive officials' response was, it, it's a right-wing talking point. You're making this up. It Crime actually isn't as bad as it was 20 years ago. So they, they basically denied the lived experience of their own constituents. And that made people angry. It still makes people angry. It makes me angry every time I listen to a city council member say, oh, it's not that bad. It was much worse during the crack epidemic. I'm like, this is the bar you're setting for how people should feel. People feel unsafe. Their elected officials need to respond to that fear. If it's irrational, explain why or talk about the things you're doing. But people don't feel safe in their own neighborhoods and if you're a mayor and you claim that's a right-wing talking point you will be punished by the way i think um the the sort of the last piece of this to to kick in and it's and it's it's going to be the delayed part is when is the sense in the culture in cities going to get to the point that um cops and the heads of police departments feel comfortable letting police police aggressively as 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 they as they need to at this moment um that is a that's a sort of that comes down to the personal level police are scared you know and 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 have been you know for for two plus years you know i think that's a long way away i mean again i'm going to be more pessimistic uh this morning but i just feel as though um all of the messages that that are in educational institutions in the city um media institutions um, the, the cultural life of the cities are all pressing against actually allowing the police to do their job. Okay. But again, let's go back. You can't Giuliani was a, a, a sport, you know, he was a, he was a, a sort of out of came out of nowhere, almost did this extraordinary, you know, stage this extraordinary performance as mayor. It's very hard to use him as an example, but here's one way in which you can use him as an example. As we know from his behavior since, very combative. He's a very combative person. And so when he got into office and the the very same pressures, uh, there were very similar pressures on the police department in the form of individual horror stories, a case, there are 38,000 cops in New York city. One, there's one incident with a cop or a couple of cops, uh, ending up, you know, crosswise of a civilian, something happens. Maybe they really misbehaved or there was some tragic error. And then the entire city opens up on the cops and in an effort to, retard or reverse some of the changes that Giuliani was attempting to implement. And he had a choice from very early on, which was to say, we will not tolerate misbehavior by our police department. We will investigate every, we're going to, this person is now, you know, suspended and blah, 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 blah. And he went in exactly the opposite direction. And this is a choice. He was, I, will stick up for the cops at every turn. And you know what? My presumption is they're innocent. My presumption is any encounter they have with somebody that turns violent is almost certainly going to be the fault of the person who turns violent. He had a weekly radio show in New York on WABC in which people would call in and say, what about this and what about that? And he would say, shut up. These people, are their lives are on the line. Get off my air. You know, like that kind of thing. He was, these are my people. I'm defending them till the last you know, you know, to, you know, to, to the very end. And, and 
it was highly controversial and the New York Times hated him and everybody hated him. And the point is that the police department thought that he had their back. And he did have their back. And then, but there was also, you know, a, a sea change. Remember, this is Joe Biden. This is the time of Joe Biden's crime bill. When Democrat and Bill Clinton was the president in part because he took a different tack on crime and and, and that than, than Democrats had in the previous, you know, 15, 14, 15 years. But it's all a question of whether you want to take that approach. It's not like Eric Adams couldn't take that approach. He hasn't really had this specific thing. You know, in other words, like where he had to defend the police against the idea that they were, uh, you know, they were doing uh, evil things. There's another approach that a mayor could do if they don't want to be quite so uh, combative. Uh, Although, I I mean, I tend to prefer the Giuliani mayoral style, given the chaos and, and particularly social disorder in a lot of cities. However, they can talk about what's happening to these cities financially. What's happening in, for example, in DC is that people, as people move out, and uh, workers don't come back into the city post-pandemic, and particularly in a federal city like D.C., where a lot of workers are now doing staying remote most of the time. The downtown is floundering. That means tax revenues aren't being collected because businesses are closing down or doing a lot less business. The city is losing money. So that comes up again. This also happened to some extent in San Francisco. The city council wants to spend, 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 spend. But the base projections for revenue going uh, looking ahead for the next five to 10 years are absolutely miserable. They're going to barely afford to do the the basics. So uh, uh, someone who comes more from the left side of the aisle but is more moderate could say, look, this city is not going to thrive if we don't get people back to it. And the main thing that drives people away are crime, crimes, particularly for small businesses, which really can't afford all this, oh, yes, insurance will pay. They can't afford to remain in business if their windows are getting smashed, you know, a couple times a month. This is happening here in D.C. with a lot of our small businesses. So that message, the, the sort of fiscally responsible message is if you want a thriving, healthy city where people can actually come in, earn money, and you know even commuters can come in and feel safe and eat at our restaurants, you have to make this, this city street safe. And they haven't done that yet. Look, um, you know, we also talk about these, you know, DA, the, this, this question of enforcement of, 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 of misdemeanor uh, offenses, which is you know the hot the hot thing in municipal governance, is is not prosecuting people for misdemeanor offenses and essentially decriminalizing street level crime, shoplifting, you know, mugging. The I don't hear turnstile jumping. Yeah, but turnstile jumping is like that's already that's the lowest. I'm talking about like there's much more sort of um, you know eye-popping you know people walking into a marshal there's a marshal's in my neighborhood right it's closed because there was so much shoplifting that they no longer wanted to maintain they would have had to up their security force or you know do things where like in our like in every drugstore in the country practically you know if you want to get yourself some shaving cream it's locked behind something and you have to press a button and have somebody come over and open you know, use a key to open it so you can get a can of shaving cream. I mean, this is kind of what what it's like now. And if you were Eric Adams or Paul Vallis or or you know uh, any of these, and you you said, you know, you went to war with the DA, you went to war with the city council. You you said, I've been elected to solve the crime problem. We have a crime problem because we're not enforcing the law. I mean, it's very simple. You know, it's the classic, if you subsidize something, you get more of it. If you say you can steal up to $900 without consequence, you're going to get a lot of people who steal $900 worth of goods. And you're going to have the police, which is even more important. You're a shop owner. You call the police and you say, someone, you know, just stole $900 of goods from me. And they're going to say... Sorry, like we're not going to do the paperwork because the case isn't going to get prosecuted. We're not going to come by and look at your footage and, you know, and do, you know, interview people on the on the camp, you know, and like try to make make the make the thief because there, no case is going to be made. And that's a waste of our time. Aside from being scared, it's also this kind of like, what are what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to people keep saying, where are the police? Well, Effectively, these things aren't crimes anymore. 
That's that's what it means to say you're not going to prosecute a misdemeanor offense. You are declaring misdemeanor offenses right. that you're saying they're not crimes anymore. I mean, it does help to have eyes on the street, as I learned from Jane Jacobs many, yes. many years ago. And so just the having a police presence, I do think, reduces crime, even if uh it, it deters even the you know the incidence of crime rather than before you get to the prosecution stage. I mean, for someone like Eric Adams, it takes so much pressure to get him to do something. I mean, we had all those high profile deaths in the subway system before he was finally forced to reevaluate the city's mental health policies and take, I think, an important step, which is to say, you know, we were go- we are going to proactively remove threats. You know, the violently, criminally ill. We're going to do our best to remove them from the street. Um, but it took a lot to get him there, right? He is, as you say, more interested in wanting to wear the hat and show up at the latest club opening. You know, um, that's kind of what motivates him. Vallis's challenge is to say, okay, I'm, he's probably going to win the runoff, um, because, um, uh, the opponent, um, uh, his opponent is associated with defund the police. And I think it should be pretty easy for him. Dallas, that is to, to defeat him on that basis. So if he wins the runoff, um, he needs to come in as mayor of Chicago and say, I'm here to do this. And that means I'm going to hire more police. I am going to protect the magnificent mile. I mean, just start there, just reduce the shoplifting on the magnificent mile on the lakefront, make people feel safe there. And you may have a, um, you know, during the surge in Iraq, what we called the kind of the inkblot strategy of kind of, you know, uh, a spread, a spreading circle of public safety. Right. Um, I, you know, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's really going to be a test. I, and I, I do think that, you know, he, he is clearly more conservative, uh, than many small C conservative than any of the mayoral candidates we've been talking about in the past couple of years. Um, but it is important to note though, uh, he he went out of his way to prove that he is a Democrat uh, during this primary and defuse that charge that he is a crypto Republican. And, you know, his campaign manager is Joe Trippi, who is, a you know, a veteran Democratic campaign strategist, Howard Dean's campaign strategist way back from the 2004 campaign. Um, so he will still face, I think, internal Democratic Party factions who are just not interested in public safety. That is not their, that's not why they wake up in the morning yeah. for their city to feel safe. They have another agenda, right? Yeah, but he has, okay, but, and Adams, this is where things are interesting. So as you say, like 40% rise in crime and then just this spate of horror stories on the subway. I'm a daily rider of the subway. Abe is a daily rider of the subway. We can tell you that the subway is in parlous shape. And it's not in parlous shape necessarily because you feel unsafe. It's sordid. It's grimy. Um, every third subway car has a homeless person splayed out, uh, you know, reeking on benches in, you know, often not entirely ventilated cars. It's depressing and demoralizing to ride on the subway. And then you had this spate of absolute horror stories people every couple of days somebody getting pushed on a track and getting hit by a train or getting pushed on a track and cracking his head open somebody having to jump onto the track and pull them up onto the track pull them up onto the platform before they got hit by a train like there must have been a dozen of these cases in six weeks or something like that and finally and in part because Kathy Hochul was facing a real challenge for her in in the governor's race in mid-October, finally, they started moving. And um, and since then, there is an immense amount of police presence in the subway system. And you know what? Crime has dropped 30%. It's like axiomatic. It's like more enforcement, more eyes on the platform, more cops just walking up and down the platform, whatever. It's, a, it's like it's not rocket science. You don't but- need to come up with a theory here. It's that if there's a police presence, there's less crime, period. End of discussion. Chicago, and then I'll let Christine talk. Chicago, New York City has 38,000 cops. Okay? It's a it's the largest city. Chicago is the third largest. Chicago has fewer than 12,000 cops. Chicago is geographically enormous. It's 25 miles from the Indiana border 
to the border of, you know, Evanston. Like it, it it's 25 miles long and it's I don't know how many miles wide. It's a huge place. And they do not have enough police officers. And one of the things that happens when you don't have enough police officers is either the cops are the cops are sometimes they get totally demoralized or they are more violent or more uh provocative than they would be otherwise because they're outnumbered they're so outnumbered and so you have this weird balance in chicago where in some of the worst neighborhoods over the last 20 years you have had some grotesque police behavior uh that you know won various people pulitzers and stuff like that uh, examining and looking at it because they were cops were overwhelmed and wanted to make examples and scare the crap out of people in the neighborhoods not to do the bad things that they were doing. That's a terrible form of policing, obviously, but it is sort of like a human nature thing. Anyway, go ahead. Um, I Well, I wanted to add to that because I think you touched on something that we haven't mentioned that's important. Um, and it's important because it's something that's unquantifiable. And it, it's often the it's something I'm often rebutting when someone throws some statistic at me and says, you shouldn't be worried about this because, look, the statistics over time show this or that. The unquantifiable thing is a sensibility, a sensibility of if you see more cops on a subway platform, you feel safer. Are you statistically safer? Who knows? It depends on where you're standing, what time of day it is, et cetera, et cetera. But there are so many unquantifiable things that go into the making of a, of civic health in our cities. And I was struck because I all my liberal friends, actually four of them sent me the same link the other day day to this Marshall Project article about the shoplifting panic. And it was all about how, oh, these cities are cracking down on shoplifters, but it's not that big a deal. It's mainly the employees stealing stuff. It's inflation. They had all of these excuses. Oh, we shouldn't prosecute. There are racial disparities if we prosecute all the usual left-wing talking points. So I sent it back and I was like, okay, but what about, and John, this speaks to something we've talked about on the podcast for years. What about the you're a sucker problem? And the you're a sucker problem here is that I, my kids have spending money. They have to have a budget. They have to earn their own money. And they go into CVS after school and they have to stand in line and pay for what they what they buy. Meanwhile, all around them are their other fellow high schoolers just stealing. No repercussions. No, no, nothing at all. Just brazenly taking whatever they want off the shelves and walking out knowing there will be no repercussions. And these are in, in urban CVSs that have cops around in the area when the school lets out. So there's a feeling and they'll say they're like, yeah, I mean, obviously they're going to pay for what they what they are buying, but there's a feeling they have. It's a it's a cynicism you certainly don't want to see in young kids. But it's like, well, of course, those kids all steal and, you know, there's they won't also, get in trouble. I, there's something of this. The quasi legal status of marijuana is like has created some weird aspect of this, too, because I can't tell you how many times you walk through Manhattan and you can see while standing in the same spot and looking in the same direction. One guy with the table selling weed on the street and a cop, which is illegal. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, that right. is illegal. Right. The law says you have yeah. to sell marijuana out of licensed dispensaries right and then and you can see from the same vantage point a cop half a block away doing something else right. um and that so that is that feeds to this well why what what, what is there to fear here what everyone can kind of what do are what rules want. for right but yeah, you by know, the way uh, by the way let me just in, interrupt for a second to say that um uh there is a remarkable piece on this subject but but from a different angle by Susie weiss in the free press this morning which is about colleges and cheating. And um, and it is about piece. how yeah. cynicism on college campuses is now so rife that everyone's now talking about what chat GPT is going to do to writing papers and all of that, but that basically she discerns and proves with reporting and all of this that, you know, the kids who work hard and play by the rules at colleges and do what they're supposed to do are, are increasingly facing down the fact that there is a culture, a, a culture of cheating that comes from this, what you might call a nihilistic frame, which is there is no agreed upon set of standards, according to which if you're caught cheating once at college, you're thrown out or, or something like that. You know, like there are no stakes. <clears throat> All anybody cares about is getting through and getting grades or doing, you know, or, or having fun or whatever you might want to call it. And, and they're always looking for a way to cheat and, 
you know, everything. And so this is now a elite cultural problem. It's not just kids on, you know, kids in bad neighborhoods shoplifting from, from CVS. It is people in elite colleges who are looking to cheat. And, and this is a, this is an endemic cultural. I mean, this may actually segue into the conversation about SCOTUS because what all of you are talking about is this general failure to enforce rules because of a sense that those rules are unfair. And then you don't, and, and, uh, and then you don't enforce any rules. And then that leads to, um, one, uh, social pathology, but two, what you're talking about is this nihilistic sense that, well, the rules don't matter. So why do I care? I mean, when Abe was talking about his anecdote, I thought he where you were going, Abe was saying, I can't tell you how many times I walk down a street in a, in New York or DC and smell marijuana or have someone, uh, smoking marijuana next to you. And I could tell you how many times all the time <laughs> I can't go into a city yeah. without that. Um, and it's right. So while it's unfair, we can't, we're, we're decriminalizing it mainly because we think it's not fair. It's not fair. So we're not going to enforce the rules and look what happens. But, but so everyone, so we don't enforce rules and everyone bends the rules. You know, there are, there are, there are all these retail spots in, in the city that are not supposed to sell pot, but they do. Um, and that that's becoming an increasing issue now because it's it's out of control. I just want one more point about the John's about the yeah. cops and the the decrease in in crime. Um, you don't need a theory to prove that more policing um, means less crime. You need a theory to prove the opposite, and there and that's what they you know the 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 opponents of policing come up with regarding the 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 size of uh, Chicago and the police force. The, the the real problem here, and this goes back to my my first proposition about police being afraid to police, um, and this is the long term problem, is that recruitment for uh, uh, across the country is down, and and attrition is up. So, no matter the policy changes, there's a crisis looming here about getting enough cops to do the job. Right. Can I, I want to read something to you guys and then ask you, uh, you sort of know, I think, because I sent it to you, but I'm going to read this to you and then, okay. Uh, our children are getting up in the morning on their way to school. They're stopping at the local bodega and they get gummy bears that's laced with cannabis and they're sitting in the classroom and we are asking, why can't our children read and write? Why don't they behave? We are destroying our next generation, destroying them. Who said that yesterday? Eric Adams, the mayor of New York City. So what is he, a caller, caller to a talk, call, you know, calling into a talk show? Our children are buying gummy bears laced with cannabis. We're destroying them. Uh, okay, what are you going to do about it, pal? You're the mayor. You're the mayor. Like, you're not allowed to, what are you, going around diagnosing? What is this, the malaise speech? The pro, you know, I mean, you know, that's it the is whole the Malay speech, which is it now is the apparently the greatest speech ever written. Yeah, the greatest speech ever written. The speech that 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 destroyed a presidency because it was the president saying, you know, the problem here is really I can't do anything to fix anything. It's yeah, a it's spiritual me, it's problem in this country. But it's also with yeah. Adams the, the spiritual angle. I mean, it, it really is the Malay speech. No, he goes into church and God made him mayor, didn't make him mayor of Topeka. He's mayor of New York. I mean, it's a fascinating thing. I just I'm only mentioning it because here we have the circumstance in which he is effectively diagnosing the problem, as he did in his mayoral run to some extent. And then he's saying, I'm just here to oh, flap my <laughs> flap my gums. Like, I don't look to me to do anything about the cannabis gummy bear problem at bodegas. How about starting a task force in the police department, which you run almost single-handedly to go around to bodegas, like, you know, in a two-week period. And when there are gummy bears laced with cannabis, you seize them and destroy them. Now, will they get more? Yes, it doesn't matter. Make their lives more difficult. That's part of what 
policing like that is? Are they going to get arrested and thrown in jail? For, I don't know what the laws are, by the way, relating to the sale of to the sale of the, for, by the selling to underage they're people might trigger to be selling to underage. Well, people, first of all, they're right? not supposed to be yeah. selling to underage people and they're not supposed to be selling it at all. And then you have, you know, so I don't know, whatever. I'm just saying it's an interesting moment because everybody understands that there is a problem except for the people who do what Christine is talking about, which is. And by the way, it's no, there's no problem. You know what? If you look at it statistically, there's no problem. And, And that is not the lived experience of every single person on the planet. You're not supposed to sell candy cigarettes, you know, yeah, let alone, you know, pot gummy bears anyway. yeah okay so um that is a pretty uh startling thing and i need to tell you guys about bambi our advertiser today uh look hr issues can kill you one complaint against your com- company can turn your world upside down and a lot of people particularly small businessmen spend way too much time dealing with hr when they should be spending their time on how to make a profit Bambi uh, offers you by phone, text, email, real-time chat, a dedicated HR manager starting at $99 a month. Based in the United States, you can get your HR solved by an HR manager instead of trying to figure it out yourself and possibly putting your company at risk. Bambi clients are four times less likely to have a complaint filed against them, in part because Bambi customizes HR policies to fit your business and it helps small business owners with most with complex HR issues and employment nuances across all 50 states. So go to Bambi.com right now and type in Commentary Magazine under podcast when you sign up for your free conversation today to see how much Bambi can take off your plate. Spelled B-A-M-B-E dot com, Bambi.com, type in Commentary Magazine, and we thank Bambi for sponsoring the Commentary Magazine podcast. Um Okay, so uh, the Supreme Court of the United States yesterday heard the challenge from, um, I think, Missouri and Nebraska. Do I have that right? The the two states that have brought suit against the $400 billion uh, erasure of college-level student loans. And uh, it's uh, the stories today are, the conservatives are skeptical. They're skeptical of this. And again, this is another circumstance where you have um, liberals saying things like, eh, this is all based on a fake conservative theory called the major questions doctrine, by which, which was reflected in Chief Justice Roberts saying, you're saying that a 2003 law called the HEROES Act that allowed the suspension of certain types of financial obligations for people who went into the military after 9-11, which gave the executive branch authority to modify some of these arrangements to help those who were, who might, you know, find themselves in financial jeopardy. When they were seeing combat in a war, which should be added. Yes. Yes. But he said, um, how is uh, ending $400 billion worth of debt a modification that's modif- you're modifying an entire industry in which millions upon millions of people owe 400 billion dollars worth of debt service you're really going to use the word modify and then i think he quoted uh from late justice antonin scalia who once quipped that you know the french revolution modified the status of the french aristocracy <laughs> right so yeah. we can use the word in various ways. And and uh, this is equivalent. I mean, it's not murder, but it's I think it's an equivalent stretching of what modify means. Um, there's also a weird timing issue. The HEROES Act is, uh, well, first we should say Biden didn't think he had this authority. He's on record saying he didn't have the authority. Nancy Pelosi said he well, didn't. He said have it would be a stretch, too. right? Did I don't think say- I have. No, this is tw- two, yeah, yeah. 2021 yeah. and CNN. I don't think I have the authority to do it by signing with the pen. <laughs> okay, so that's the president. And then he does it in uh, the lead up to the midterm elections. Um, 
But he does it on the basis that, well, since it's an emergency, right, the pandemic was an emergency and Trump had suspended the payments because of the emergency we entered three years ago this month, uh, he can then modify the emergency to include the cancellation of all, you know, all of uh, not all of the debt, but quite a bit. Um, The majority, this is the Wall Street Journal, the majority of the 43 million people in the United States who hold hold a total of one point six trillion dollars in federal student loan debt would see some type of debt forgiveness under the proposed plan with relief of up to $20,000 per borrower. That's why the cost is estimated at somewhere around $400 billion, um, probably more. Um, so I'm going to, he says, I'm going to modify it now to, to impose this plan at the same time. However, the, the emergency is ending. The emergency will end in May. Right. And it's already been quietly revoked on the state level in various places. Right. But the federal emergency is going to end. So what he's essentially saying is that it's a perpetual emergency. All you need to do is invoke an emergency state once and then the president can really do whatever he wants in perpetuity. Hey, it's the it's the it's the Israel embassy to Jerusalem line. Right. So in 1995, Congress passes a law saying the embassy has to move to Jerusalem but the president is given permission or g- gave the president an out that if there was a specific emergency in place at the time that the embassy was supposed right. to move he could evoke the, he could invoke the emergency and sus- and suspend the move and like push it f- forward in time and for 22 years every time it was time to do that ah, sorry it's an emergency well, there, we have so 22 many year emergencies emergency. Right. I mean, I, you know, I remember the shock I felt when I first started receiving uh, White House press releases as a young reporter during the Bush administration. And what I noticed was every other release issued by the White House was a declaration of an emergency somewhere in the country or or in respect to some other country or or a modification of the emergency. There's the, the emergency language is completely overused. I think that's the first point. The second point is, I mean, I think Roberts was dead on and, uh, you know, he, he he's very smart, obviously. Uh, but it, the idea that uh, when Congress wrote this law, the HEROES Act, they foresaw such an occurrence, you know, oh, yeah, well, sure, that just get rid of it, rewrite it. That's part. That's not what they that's not, clearly not what they meant when they wrote this law. I mean, that's, that's I think that's a commonsensical uh, reaction. But of course, for liberals and for the defenders of the Biden administration, that's exactly what they want. Well, they this want was, this delegation. Yeah. This was obviously a cynical uh, election move by Biden. He knew it. Everyone knew it. The press covered for it. And and now retroactively, they're having to try to defend it as a constitutionally viable idea when it is clearly not. And what I think it's that's bad enough. But what's worse is that um, and particularly the way the press has been covering this story in the last few weeks it's inculcating in an entire generation of young people uh, the idea that they are owed, they, they are entitled to money from the government when they make a career choice that doesn't pan out for them, when they go to college and, in, and incur debt, that they have no plan going forward as to how to pay off, that it's someone else's fault for the decision they made. And I know I sound harsher, and as someone who had to pay off my own student loans and work my way through college, I am harsh on this. But the irresponsibility that it would encourage, not just for education, but this this will spread. We know all these kinds of federal programs are like kudzu. They don't ever stay in their area. And the Department of Education itself declared one of its one of its legal counsels in a memo before any of this was done said this isn't constitutional. There's no power here for the president to do this. That's bad enough. But I am really worried about the message it sends in values. This is a values issue for a lot of people. This is exactly why Matt's right. This was a this is this loops back to the what are you a sucker question? Absolutely. Why, why, why would you why would you pay why would absolutely. you pay your, and your loans? Yeah. Also, you know, we have. All sorts of uh, counter pressures. We have Josh Shapiro, the uh, the new governor of Pennsylvania, uh, declaring that a whole sheaf sheaf is not the right word. I'm saying a whole list of government jobs in Harrisburg and elsewhere in in Pennsylvania. It will no longer be a requirement that you have a college degree in order to apply or be hired for those jobs. We have people everywhere understanding that there is a crisis because the country is making demands on young people that they get some kind of a degree for which they may not be suited 
or that they may not be able to achieve. And 70% of them end up going into higher education in some fashion as a customer. And I don't know what 40% of those 70% or higher don't actually end up getting a degree, borrowing money, and then they don't get a degree at all. We have instilled in them or we we have a we we have a preferential social benefit from having a college degree that is causing a lot of this debt and uh we have people now acting to make sure that this con does not in fact you know there has to be a way out of this right and Biden is now doubling down on the idea that you should make it as as cheap as possible for someone to become a cog in this higher education money machine right. that well, the government will now subsidize in perpetuity. Right. In some ways, it's backdoor f- free college, or at least some part of free college, if you're going to just um, provide the relief. Anyway, I do think before we briefly touch on the standing question, I, I do think we should um, distinguish between the constitutional questions here and the political questions here. Yeah. I mean, on its face, this is unconstitutional. I mean, it, in my view, I mean, and I think the view of the majority of the Supreme Court. Um, however, the political question is slightly different. Yeah. This is good politics for the Democratic Party. Well, it's complicated, it, right? Again, cross yeah, pressures. I, I mean, I, I think I think he knows it's good, it, it, you know, for the youth vote, for the, all the single ladies, you know, who came out to support him, the you know, yeah. uh, all the single ladies. I so agree. we can break into song. I, I'm, I'm very close. I'm very close. If I had a little bit more coffee, maybe yeah. I will, Christine. Um, so, uh, to I, I see the messaging from the RNC on this. Biden's bailout. Yeah. Biden. Biden's bailout. Giving these these lazy college. I don't think it works. I, I, I mean, yeah, I don't I'm, think that works. I don't think that works. But a world in which the a benefit is provided that is more valuable the higher up you get i mean it's like it's like the reverse of a progressive benefit it is a yeah. more value to people it's the higher the more payoff. the more well, right, talking the about more, the regressive yeah. aspects of it for sure i mean that right. that i think would and, be more and just the just the grotesque unfairness of yeah. The 70% of Americans who do not have college degrees subsidizing the college right. degrees of the 30% who do. There yeah. were great now, ads for that. Remember, they, they showed the mechanic well. talking about yeah. having to p- pay off the debt of the dance studies major, the waitress who taught. There were some wonderful ads made I, just I, on I, that. I, Look, I'm with you. I'm sympathetic. Okay. I just see this, right. the, those suburbs, yeah. you know, and yeah. then, well, they also you know, at the convention in 2024, there will be a parade of people who say, Joe Biden helped. Joe Biden. I, you know, I got, I had to get a second mortgage and because to pay off my uh, student loan debt and I was on the brink of penury, but Joe Biden helped me out. And so I just, I'm a little bit leery constitutionally. This is where conservatives, this is why conservatives exist to say, you know, we have this constitution. It's beautiful. It has the separation of powers, federalism. We need to abide by it. And this clearly violates it. I am. I am. I have to say that I was. I'm mildly distressed by uh, Elena Kagan, uh, whom I uh, think is a more interesting jurist than 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 the other lib- the, the her two other liberals on the court, who said that it's like an open and shut. Uh, it's open and shut that con- that this is constitutional because the Heroes Act says you can modify. Well, it. what what they're really fighting about here is what is called the major questions doctrine, yeah. right? Which is this new move on the part of the conservative legal movement to actually force Congress to to do its job and to, and to write into law what it wants the executive to do. Because for so long, Congress writes these statutes delegating broad authority to the bureaucracies and to the president. And from that perspective, Elena Kagan is saying, well, that's what they've been doing for 70 years. You're only now conservatives starting to say uh, that the court is going to enforce the constitutional um, limits to bu- bureaucratic authority by saying right. that when you get to major questions, 
the Congress needs to be very specific about what it wants the agencies to do. So I can see where she's coming from because she's yeah. trying to fight off this this idea uh, uh, of major questions, which will which will, if implemented over a generation, uh, limit executive authority and the bureaucracy, which is exactly what conservatives want right. to do, but which Elena Kagan, of course, they, is terrified of. Yeah. But Matt is correct in what he said earlier, that there is there needs to be some political messaging from conservatives on this that's better than what we've seen. Because the other day, Jamal Bowman was standing outside the Supreme Court getting tons of media attention to say, Joe Biden's upholding the law here. There's no law, but well, I most will say Americans don't know that. It was great for conservatives and the GOP that Randy Weingarten was there uh, on the steps of the Supreme Court, basically yes. having a uh, an episode. She was uh, having a toddler uh, tantrum. Some type of uh, tantrum. And, she needed um, a timeout. She is, she is a great, uh, she's, of course, the president of the uh, teachers union. Um, and uh, she, I think, is a great um, unwitting ally to uh, to conservatives uh, who want parental rights in education. But, you know, it's always a battle to make the case that Americans shouldn't get something. Um, that's that's the challenge. You you can you know, you could try to be like too clever by half here, but it's very hard to 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 sell um, a, a story about why why you should have to pay it's like harry hopkins said during the new deal tax tax spend spend elect yeah. elect um just to get to we have like only a couple minutes left but, but matt mentioned standing so standing this is simply the case that somebody who is the plaintiff in this case has to show a harm that is being done to them uh in order to have standing to sue and overturn um you know this uh, this this program and uh this is where we get into um the incredible sophistry that can that 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 can attach to efforts by liberals in particular uh i think not that there i'm sure there are conservative cases uh to say that you know like a you know a chair is not a chair and two plus two equals five we heard in this case that um the uh, Solicitor General, Elizabeth uh, Prelogar, was making the argument that Missouri, one of the plaintiffs, was not being harmed uh, by the fact that it would no longer get income from its uh, from the debt service that it had provided, you know, the, the, the money it had provided in the debt service uh, because it had created an agency in 2022 called mohila which isn't which and suppose uh, that is now the debt servicer which is part of the state and it was the it's the argument that uh, it's not part of the state uh it is the debt servicer for loans in missouri uh from the state of missouri to people in missouri and um and basically prelgar was 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 reduced to saying it's not the state because it's an agency of the state, but it's a separate agency. It's not part of the state government because it's a separate thing. And even though so um, and so they have no standing because uh, Mohila, the state isn't being injured. And the state of Missouri is who sued is who sued uh, uh, to end this, uh, you know, who brought this action to end the federal the student loan forgiveness. And it's it, it is literally like speciousness watching speciousness happen yeah um interestingly though uh justice uh, amy coney barrett seems somewhat sympathetic to this idea that uh it would uh, to have standing it would have to be the agency itself the mohila the actual agency to have brought the suit um and so you have a sp potential situation where the three liberal justices uh plus barrett may actually uh, conclude that the case should be dismissed on the basis of lack of standing. Now, that's still not a majority of the court, though. And the the, the rest of the conservative judges were pretty silent on this question. Or the, uh, I forget who made the point in oral argument that, you know, maybe Mohila didn't bring the suit 
itself because it's afraid of the potential injury or retaliation, right? Um, and I think that's a legitimate argument as well. But um, what's funny is, uh, as Ilya Soman points out on the Volokh conspiracy blog, uh, that typically it's conservatives who want to limit standing and to want to knock off a lot of lawsuits because uh, you can't prove a direct injury or harm. Uh, in this case, it's the liberals, including the Biden administration, who specifically tried to write the regulation in order to limit the ability of people to bring lawsuits. Um, uh, that's a danger um, uh, for people who believe that this is an unconstitutional act by the executive. Uh, but it does seem as though a majority of the court will will side that uh, their misery does have standing to bring the lawsuit. I'm not sure that Barrett wasn't doing a kind of Socratic inquiry here. Yeah, exactly. Right. She's a and, professor. And, 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 yeah. try, and trying to get and trying to elicit the best argument that yeah. Prelogar could possibly offer in order then to knock it down later. But we don't really know. we got to go. Run too long. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back tomorrow for uh, Abe, Matt, and Christine. I'm John Bob Horitz. Keep the candle burning.